There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Well, that was another great episode of Max Mike Movies, wasn't it, Mike? Oh, oh, don't you remember? We just did an entire episode in our monochrome series about the movie Gaslight. Oh, Mike, Mike, Mike. You've forgotten it already, haven't you? Just as you forget so many things. I'm really worried about you, Mike. I think you're losing your mind. Just like, well... You know what happened to your second cousin's college roommate's orthodontist, don't you? Yes, he went mad. Mad, I tell you. He died alone in an asylum for mentally ill orthodontists. Yes, it's a very small niche asylum, but that's not the point. You're just as mad as he is, forgetting entire episodes, seeing ponies where there aren't any. I'm afraid you'll have to go away for a while. But don't worry. I'll take good care of the Max Movies podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. I was uh, I was in the bathroom. Did I uh, did I miss anything? Oh, damn it! My huh. fiendish plot! Foiled uh, by you meddling kid and your pony. <laughs> oh, well. I, I guess sure. we'll just have to ac- actually do the episode. Kind of makes me wish I'd actually watch the movie. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I am your not-at-all-evil-really-I'm-not host, Max Levine, and over there, trying on the lovely sweater I got him with the really long sleeves, is your other host, Howling Mad Mike Luce. I can't hold on to my phone. (laughs) Don't worry about it, you won't need it. Would you like some sand? (laughs) It is, although not when this comes out, but today apparently is Life Day, so we would like to wish all our listeners a happy Life Day, or at least that you had one. And from the bottom of our hearts, and have some sand. Have some sand. (laughs) But in addition to sand, we've got the poll question for you. Poll question. Last week's poll question is, what is your favorite black and white movie? When does color just not matter because black and white is all you need, along with love? <laughs> and from, from the frozen tundra of the north where the great moose and the walrus live, we have Vince chiming in, or Snowy as Mike and only Mike calls him. <laughs> I don't even know if he... Like, I, he might be mad at me for that. I don't know. Now, it was hard to read this because some of it is written in Canadian. Uh, <laughs> does color ever matter? Uh, what the hell is color? They spell it funny. There's a U in it, Ed. Does color, does color ever matter? I love silence, so I think sound might have been a bad idea, and color is another step too far. By cracky. Third Man is a masterful showcase of how great black and white is. Recently, The Lighthouse was also just an amazing black and white film, and color would have taken away from the impact of the story. Hmm. That's actually one I was thinking we might do. Young Frankenstein is a great example of how black and white can add a sense of time and place in a very funny movie. So many of my favorite movies, (laughs) I I think that's Canadian again, are are in black and white, and it's really hard to pick one. Oh, boy, I get that. From our favorite cheese boy, Ned... As for my favorite movie that happens to be in black and white, I adore Roman Holiday. Oh, Oh. yeah. It's not an especially deep cut, but there's a lot of charm to it, and I'm very glad that the filmmakers resisted the urge to make the ending anything other than it was. Even Even this many decades later, it's still the best travel advertisement for Rome I've ever seen. You know, I hadn't thought of that, but he's right. It makes Rome look so cool. Well, I don't know. I didn't get to put my hand in the statue's mouth, but whatever. Well, you didn't try, did you? Literally the only scene I know from that movie. <laughs> it, that actually, oh boy, now I want to do that one in this series, because oh. that really is a great black and white. Anyway, yeah, thanks, Ned. Uh, Tony Merrill just says, another vote for Young Frankenstein. Yep. Dave! Too many to name. I will, however, I will lead with the Seven Samurai. Yeah. I think the uh, cinematography is often the strongest aspect of the Japanese films I watch. A cult is my passport. I don't know uh. if that uh, uh, is also a favorite that's widely available. It's a, I'm going to say this wrong, Seijin Suzuki film. Ah. Uh. 
others, Nosferatu, the Seventh Seal, the Thin mm. Man, the Maltese Falcon, Little Caesar. Yeah, it's really hard to pick just one. I love his pizza. Pizza, pizza. <laughs> Please sponsor us, Little Caesars. Um, <laughs> no. Nick Hoffman says, the first ones that come to mind for me are Young Frankenstein. So yeah. That's like three right there, because it had to be in black and white. Mm. The Elephant Man, so powerful. Mm-hmm. The Seven Samurai, Kurosawa and Mifune. He's up there with Dave, yep. And the Seahawk, oh yeah. Errol Flynn and Michael Curtiz at the height of their powers. Oh, here's a little wrinkle Errol never thought of. <laughs> I'll have to check with Errol. <laughs> Balcoons says, I'm Who? with the others, but I'm going to throw, throw one out here. The much more modern and slightly more obscure Joss Whedon version of Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, right. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I actually saw that. Me too. Yes, I, yes, I know Joss, but yeah. it's a wonderful film with a kind of unexpected cast. Na- this is very true. Mm. Nathan Fillion as Dogsbury is a hoot. He actually is. He is way better than Michael Keaton was. Because yeah. you can understand what he's saying. Yeah. And I I would have not, not have wanted to see it in color. The other one I would have gone with is The Artist. Yeah, that's another good one. Such a great film. Hmm. Tyler Stewart says, either The Haunting or Curse of the Demon. Both oh. could be done with color. Uh, oh, could be done with color. It was just that those were the first two films that popped to mind. Okay. Okay. Tim Potter says... Oh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. <laughs> All right, I'm a little early, but who knows when this will play. So this does not really answer your question. Then why are you doing it? No, sorry. <laughs> um, but AMC ran the first season of The Walking Dead in black and white. Oh. I didn't know that. Huh. I absolutely loved it. It gave it a more intense feel. Okay, it's more like Night of the Living Dead. All right. Sure. When I watched season two in color, I was actually disappointed. Hmm. Huh. Uh, Agatha Gasparoni says Schindler's List. Ooh, boy. Oh, boy. There are a few there are a few instances where color is used to great effect, and the black and white enhances the historical setting. Point. Ralph Smith says simply Godzilla. <laughs> and, and he means the original with well, Raymond Burr. He, I know the original was not with Raymond Burr, but it you know the one we came over here was. Well, the the direct sequel, um, which we never ever watch because it's not good and I forget there's like barely any Godzilla in it, was also black and white, and after that they were all color. Oh, okay. But if you really want the nuance, if you want the rich depth, the cultural integrity of Godzilla, you need to do it in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) The cultural intensity of Godzilla, ladies Um, and gentlemen. And what about you, Mike? What's your favorite black and white movie? Well, I mean, it's an easy one. It is one I'm surprised nobody else mentioned. Hmm? And it's going to be coming up again in today's uh, discussion, but Casablanca. Yeah, that's, that's actually my pick, too. I've got, I mean, there's two other ones. I do really like Maltese Falcon. We might be looking at that one, too. And another one that I'm surprised nobody popped up with, and because and we could easily answer the question, would this film be worse in color? And the answer is, yes, is It's a Wonderful Life. Oh. Mm. I do love that film. It's a big pile of cheese, but I still love that film. But this was your question. Wait, yep. no, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it was no, my that was question. your question. So what, what was your favorite black and I, white movie? I told you, it's the same one yours was, Casablanca. Oh, it is, that, yeah. Because that's also just one of my favorite movies, period. But once again, it, was, it wouldn't work in color. I remember they tried when... The, you know, he who must not be named, Ted Turner, tried to colorize a bunch of black and white movies. Yeah. Yeah. He Why did you to, mention he, Voldemort anyway? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as you don't say it three times, he won't appear. But uh, I thought that was Beetlejuice. <laughs> I'd say, oh, it's, maybe it's the Candyman. I forget. Oh, oh. right. I, I, I watched part of the colorized Maltese changed. Falcon, but my eyes started to bleed. Mostly at the point I watched the last scene when you see the Falcon. Mm-hmm. And my first thought is, the falcon, I don't know what color it's supposed to be. It's not uh, supposed to be green. <laughs> no, it was it, dark friggin' green. It has a lead covering. It's supposed to uh, be dark grayish black. That's what it's supposed to look like. It's and the real not one, that's supposed wh- to be green. No, not green. Yeah. So, yeah. The we, real one uh, is like covered with jewels and stuff. Well, it was supposed to be, but it turns out this was a fake one. So the yeah, hunt goes yeah. off. But. Thank you all yes, for your answers. Thank you we, so much. This was very cool. You gave us some really good ones. But I'm afraid we're going to have to ask for more, more, yes. more, more answers or, to a new question. New Max, question. what question is that? 
I already told you, Mike. Enough of that. Oh, I'll go back it... to the bathroom. You'll do the show alone. <laughs> I'm not even going to let the pony that, out of the stall. That was the whole point of uh, uh, the, this week's question. What movie is your favorite just in terms of costume or wardrobe? Oh. What movie makes the wardrobe practically a character of its own? Cool. And at the end of the episode, we will tell you ways to answer that question, including one way not to answer the question. Yes. But I'm yes. betting, well, I'm hoping that you've done your homework and we have some trivia about this film, Gaslight. Yeah, I actually had to kind of rein this in. There's a lot about this movie. Really? Well, yeah. would you get to it, Max, right? I will. Now. The facts. Oh, sorry. Too long. Oh, <laughs> damn it. No, we Fine. cannot start again. Trivia. <laughs> yeah, trivia. <laughs> Hey, Kristen, over here, honey. <laughs> Give me a look. We're, we're, we're rolling. <laughs> Budget, $2 million. Uh, really? Keeping, yeah. For 44? Yeah, 1944. Now, consider, though, that is, I actually looked this up, the equivalent today of about $33, $34 million. That's still a lot. That's a significant budget. The gross was $4.5 million worldwide. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this was directed by George Cukor. Who Cukor, also, Cukor. You may have heard from a couple of other minor flicks he did, My Fair Lady and The Philadelphia Story. And Inventor of the Clock, bearing his name. Yeah, no. Max, he invented the <laughs> clock. You know he did. Anyway, <laughs> if you can do this it, I one. can do it. <laughs> uh, no, sorry. The, uh, anyway, George It won Cougar. two Oscars, for, oh. one for Best Actress for Ingrid Bergman and Best Art Direction Black and White. Yeah, the Oscars actually had separate categories for Art Direction Black and White, Art Direction Color for a few years. Mm, neat. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best, best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Hmm. Uh, of course, the actor was Charles Boyer, and Best Supporting Actress was Angela Lansbury, who we'll get to. Yeah, boy. Yeah. <laughs> this, was, this was based on a 1939 play, and it is not the first filmed version. Oh. The, fir the first film version was in 1940, which directed by, I know this is one of your favorites, Thorold Dickinson. Oh, Thorold. Thorold Dickinson never made a bad movie, and uh, starring Anton Walbrook and Diana Winyard. Ah. Yes. <laughs> now, you may not have not run across this film... No. There are a number of reasons, one of which is when this move, when the 1944 40. movie came out, MGM, who also produced the first one, uh, tried to have all prints of the previous version destroyed. Oh. They were, however, unsuccessful, although nobody saw the other version uh, for the next few decades. The reason they were unsuccessful is a whole bunch of the prints were mistakenly labeled Angel's Street. Ah. In the title of the movie's 1938 stage production. <laughs> yeah, so it survived and no one cares. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. The winds of remembrance. And as you may have, have guessed or may be wondering, the term gaslighting, which has come into great prom prominence in the 2020s, was named for this movie. And it's become a recognized form of controlling and manipulative behavior. It involved, the not quite clinical term, involves an exploitative person manipulating people who suspect him or her into doubting themselves and questioning their own perceptions so that they distrust their own suspicions of the manipulator. This has actually been classified as a form of psychological abuse. Although the term is not in like the DSM-4, it is, however, used in the vernacular in the clinical world. Hmm. Hmm, neat. The first time Ingrid Bergman encountered Charles Boyer was the day they shot the scene where they meet at the train station and kiss passionately. Boyer was exactly the same height as Bergman. He was not a tall man. Hmm. And they wanted to make him seem taller, so he had to stand on a box, <laughs> which he, she kept kicking inadvertently <laughs> as she ran into the scene. <laughs> So they had to shoot that a bunch of times because she kept knocking him over. Uh, throughout the movie, Boyer wears two-inch heels to look taller. Wow, that hulking brute Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> now, 
Dame Angela Lansbury was also required to wear platform shoes in order to appear taller, more domineering, and more sinister in comparison to Ingrid Bergman. Lansbury added height, drew even greater attention to Charles Boyer's diminutive stature, and added to the number of scenes in which Boyer was forced to stand on a box to increase his height. <laughs> so he filmed a lot of this on a box. I see. Well... I guess we'll uh, we'll find out more about that box, won't yeah. we? That's a famous yeah. oh, box. Yeah. No, very okay. famous box. Uh, the director suggested that Ingrid Bergman study the patients at a mental hospital to learn about nervous breakdowns. She did, focusing on one woman in particular whose habits and physical quirks became part of the character, hmm. which is kind of creepy. It's like, mm. hi, I'm here to watch you suffer to try to work this into my movie. Is that cool? Oh yes, yeah, no, sure, maybe. <laughs> Angela Lansbury was only 18 when she made this movie. This oh, is her it. this is her first movie, her theatrical debut. Before wow. that she had been working at Bullock's department store in Los Angeles. And when she told her boss she was leaving, he offered to match the pay at her new job. She was expected you know, this guy was expecting it to be around the region of her Bullock's salary, which was about $27 a week. He was kind of taken aback when he she said she'd be earning $500 a week. <laughs> so, not surprisingly, he could not match it. I thought she was British. She was, but she was living in uh, California. Huh. I mean, she, she actually English. lived in Britain? Because it doesn't not sound sure. like it was very long. Well, she was born there. That Otherwise, she couldn't have been made a dame. You have to be yeah. a native-born Englishman to get a, a knighthood or a damehood. Ooh. The scene in which Angela Lansbury lights a cigarette in contradiction to Ingrid Bergman's wishes had to be postponed until the end of production. Because while Lansbury was 18 when the film was finished, she was 17 when it began, and technically she was a minor, so she had to be monitored by a social worker who refused to let her smoke. And the scene had to be postponed until her 18th birthday. When Lansbury walked on set on her birthday, Bergman and the crew had organized a party for her, and the cigarette scene was shot immediately after they had cake. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I thought so. The movie won the Academy Award for set decoration. That's set design. Okay. The gasoliers were real, and the one in Charles Boyer's bedroom came from the 1872 Menlo Park, California mansion of Senator Milton Latham, which was torn down in 1942. So Ooh, those gas lamps uh, were all real. Hmm? Mm. Uh, although she eventually became really attached to the part and insisted on acting in this movie, Ingrid Bergman was kind of reluctant to take on the role of Paula. Bergman considered herself to be a very strong and independent woman and worried that she wouldn't be able to be convincing as a timid and fragile character. She just did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She took great pride in her portrayal of a weak character and considered it one of the greatest challenges of, of her challenges as an actor. Huh. Ingrid Bergman found the... Um, initial love scene with Charles Boyer really uncomfortable because they literally had just met right before they started filming. After that, she refused to do any love scenes with anyone she had just met for the rest of her career. A similar situation arose with Anthony Perkins when she was filming Goodbye Again in 1961, so she asked Perkins to kiss her privately in her dressing room to prepare for the scene so she wouldn't be embarrassed and flustered when kissing him on screen. Ah, but of giving, course, his love was a rowing flame. Yes, of course, given Mr. Perkins' proclivities, I imagine it was kind of uncomfortable for him, too. Uh, right, Anthony. Oh, Mr. Perkins. <laughs> uh, Charles Boyer's contract stipulated top billing. However, when David O. Selznick heard this, uh, because uh, Ingrid Bergman was under contract to him at the time, he refused to loan her to loan MGM Bergman Services. After a lot of pleading from Bergman, who really wanted to work with Charles Boyer, Zelznick finally relented, and they actually did this in an odd way. Director, the director's uh, suggestion of sandwich billing helped to solve the problem. Sandwich billing practice is listing a well-known female actor in between two popular male stars. Uh, on the screen. If you look at the uh, way the credits are, you see like Ingrid Bergman and then, say, sorry, you see Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, Joseph Cotton. Okay. Yeah, so apparently that was enough. Well, Boyer still got top billing, so. Yeah, they still, they also used that uh, for Catherine Hepburn in the Philadelphia story. Oh, boy. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. want to fight her on much anything, so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she could beat the crap out of any director out there. Mm. The sets were deliberately overfilled with bric-a-brac to emphasize Paula's increasing sense of claustrophobia. 
That's French for junk. Yep. MGM sued Jack Benny for infringement because he parodied the movie in a segment called Autolite on his show. (laughs) (laughs) You don't remember that. It didn't Uh happen. Uh, The actor's legal team managed to convince MGM that the skit was in the realm of parody and therefore not a copyright violation. The studio begrudgingly dropped the the suit. This was, you got to remember, it's comparatively recent, I think in the 80s, when the Supreme Court ruled that parody was protected speech. Which is why we have Weird Al. So thank you uh, for one thing. Yeah, that stupid body of... There's, like I say, a ton of other stuff, but I think uh, that's enough for now. I'd rather have a story anyway. Yes. So let us go to the plot. Poor Paula Alquist. As a child, she finds her beloved aunt, the woman who raised her, murdered in her own home. Murdered, I think is what you meant to say. Murdered. Murdered. (laughs) She tries to put this horrible past behind her, or is it she tries to put her horrible behind in the past? I don't remember. (laughs) Did you just accuse Ingrid Bergman of having a horrible behind? Uh, Ingrid Bergman has a splendid behind. (laughs) I assume. She doesn't wear a lot of tight pants that I've I'm seen. Sorry. Um, so, as she pursues a career as an opera singer, just as her aunt was. But perhaps she has actually found joy with a new love, the handsome and very French Gregory Anton, her piano accompanist. Surely she has found a wonderful new life. Or has she? Gregory gets her to reopen her aunt's old house despite its trove of horrible memories, and the newlyweds start a life together. Or rather, Paula tries to start a life. As it turns out, Gregory has a cunning plan. He subtly and systematically begins to try to drive his new wife insane, causing her to doubt her memory and her senses. Why, she even sees the gas lights in her room darken, when there's no reason for it to happen. (gasps) What is Gregory up to? Why is he driving Paula mad? Why is Joseph Cotton playing a Scotland Yard detective when he has very clearly an American accent? And who knew Angela Lansbury ever looked that young? Questions, questions, questions. I want answers, damn it. And boy, do we get them. The film. So, Max. Yeah. You uh, Have you seen that? I usually start the, the show this way, but have you seen this movie before? Or do you remember when you first saw it? I actually do. It was, it was kind of odd. I, you know. Not surprisingly, I did not see it when it came out in 1944. You didn't? <laughs> not having existed then. Oh. No, I saw it in a little movie theater in Bar Harbor, Maine. Really? Yep. Bar Harbor. Bar Harbor. Yep. What was the... Uh, I was about 11... I was like 10 or 12 years old. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. Why are you going Because to see... that's what was playing, okay? Oh. There was one movie theater. I see. And... Max could not find anything else to do in Bar Harbor, so there had they to be had, movies. We were we were vacationing. There were a bunch of kids. They had to do something with us, or they would have murdered us. Uh, oh, oh, a whole bunch of kids got taken to yep, Gaslight. A whole like four or five kids <laughs> got to go see Gaslight. Wow, that's uh, what a, yep, that's a yep. time. That's a time. Yep. How about you? When was the first time you saw this? Yesterday. Ah, okay. Yeah. So this is a film that I, I knew the title and I knew that this is the origin of the word gaslighting, etc. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know it was Ingrid Bergman. And this is actually only the second Ingrid Bergman film I've ever seen. The only one I've ever seen is Casablanca. Oh, you never saw like Rebecca or anything? No. Okay. No, isn't that weird? Yeah. And I was really interested to see how she was as an actor outside the one role I know her for, which, to be fair, is a pretty iconic role. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I think that's the role most people know her for. I think for most of the film, she does a decent job, but she really shines in like the last 10 minutes. Oh, and I think she really like she comes alive and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but I've not, again, this is the only other part I've seen her in that to me was if you were going to pick a moment to show for the Oscars, like a clip, that was the clip. Of course, it gives away the entire film. It kind (laughs) of does. So I don't think you'd use it. What did you think of her? I think she's terrific in this. I do get what she what you, she meant about having trouble playing the timid character because mm-hmm. her performance is, I think, good throughout most of the movie. But it's yeah, when she finally is confronting him, yeah, that's when you're like, yeah, yeah. Well, we've also been we- waiting for it. It's odd because that she thinks her, thought of herself as this sort of badass, strong, independent woman because she looks like a china doll. You know, she looks so delicate and. And perfect. 
Well, and also, even in Casablanca, the one moment where she shows any toughness, she pulls the gun on Rick, nobody believes she's yeah. going to do anything with it. For all we know, there's no bullets in it. Like, yeah. so, okay, maybe was she lighter. was a very strong personality. I don't know. But yep. uh, how about Charles Boyer? This is my only Charles Boyer film. I think I've seen him in a couple of other things, but honestly, I can't remember what. I think he was great. I love the way his eyes keep going so cold whenever she isn't actually looking at him. Mm-hmm. The way his expression shifts from when he's talking to her to when she's not looking. Mm. And he's so subtle about so much of it and so devious. Of he course, really his heart is a roaring flame. Is. That's the guy. I've always wanted to know from the Warner Brothers cartoons who that was, and now I know. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, so I think he does really well. I think he's very villainous. I think he's a little old for her. Well, that's true, but that wasn't a... Th- Especially if you were putting this in the era that we were thinking it's in. Yeah. That's not unusual at all for husbands, for men to be 10, 20, 30 years older than their wives. Yeah, and he is. He's got to be at least 20 years older. I think he's fine. Um, I don't think I was blown away by his performance. I think it's it's good. I don't think it's great, personally. I I really like it. I think it fits the the character perfectly. Yeah. Um, Joseph Cotton. Yeah. My thought was, what, Joe, did you wander in from another another movie? Well, he seems he, out of place. So does his character. Yeah. And we'll come back to that, too. I The one thing I will say is I very much appreciate that he is not trying to do a British accent. Because, yes. You know, we would have gotten, speaking of Mary Poppins, we would have gotten Mary Poppins <laughs> all over again. It's a jolly holiday. <laughs> With Mary, okay, and I did think that the uh, the sets reminded me a lot of of Mary Poppins. Um, I don't think that they necessarily. I know you 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 think that a lot of little neighborhoods in Britain look like that anyway. It just that one looked very much to me like, oh, there's going to be nannies flying by any minute. So we'll see. But then there's this one actor oh, that yeah. I did not recognize until the end credits came up. I don't know if you'd, oh, you'd already seen oh. the film, but when they told me, I saw in the beginning that she was in the movie, but yeah. I didn't know who she was, and I did not expect and uh, was not prepared for Angela Lansbury. It's like, whoa, Angela Lansbury was hot. Well, but she's also just this force of nature young woman, and you never really know where her loyalties lie yeah you're like is she in on this is she just is he manipulating her too yeah she is amazing in this like the fact that this is her first motion picture a she she was good enough to get this part because it is a small part but it's not inconsequential no it has a major bearing on the plot and also messes with the audience and to be fair there's not that many characters in the film she comes out flying i mean she's just yeah i i was like that's angela Lenton. really you know i'm just used to you know this woman sitting there knitting going oh murder okay <laughs> a lovely murder poo in this film we believe she could commit one yeah so, oh she's I, tough as nails in this i want to give her the outstanding consistent performance award for this again i think ingrid bergman is good but she really shines at the end but Angela Lansbury through the film, and admittedly, again, she's she's a smaller part. You're still just like, what is going on with her? Yeah, she's, she's fascinating. Yeah, you get the feel. This is this is not someone you want to mess with. No. So you get, good. and you you can just sort of see all this backstory. It's like, oh, okay. I bet she like grew up really poor. I bet there was no father in the picture. She just had to be really tough. Doesn't you know trust anybody? Oh yeah, no, she's fat. She is intriguing. Well, and let's be fair. In recent years, the last fifteen years or so, there has been a resurgence of interest, at least on American shores, of the whole upstairs downstairs thing. Yeah, we had yeah. all of Downton Abbey. Yeah, yep, we had which was started with Gosford Park and other shows like that. Which I upstairs downstairs. Yeah. Well, that's back in the seventies. Yep. So. I think that that helps inform us as a modern audience looking at that character and understanding there was more background to her. I don't know if that was the way it was felt in 1944, but yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> I, I Once again, because we just saw her in Manchurian Candidate, and we were again blown away because it's yep. like, she's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, now yeah. you said that uh, the costumes won a an Oscar for this. Was it the uh, costumes no, it or was the a set design? Oh, set. so um, Irene didn't get her an award because yeah, no, I'm afraid not. Costumes were by Irene. Yep, just Irene. Just so, if you, I were going to pick a single name that you know, I, I'm not going to be known by another name. I am. I am <laughs> only that one name. Not maybe the name I'd pick. Yeah, Bob. Well, <laughs> I don't I'll, know. Costumes by Fred. Yeah. Yeah. That, kinda... yeah. Not not the best. I like a lot of the little side characters too. Such I as I like the general who is. Uh, I guess I don't know if he's the head of Scotland Yard, but he's mm-hmm. Joseph Cotton's superior officer. Who is very polite and never points out. Why do you talk so strangely? I yeah I couldn't because initially we don't know he's with Scotland Yard. It's not till later yeah. in the film we find out, and we're sort of like, why are you here? Yeah. And I it, think it he's. Is. I don't blame the, the acting on Joseph Cotton as much. I blame it on the writing, maybe the directing. I, maybe the direct. Yeah, it, he doesn't fit. He doesn't. But, yeah, actually, that was a piece of trivia I left out. Oh, the character in the play, the guy who played, is not a young, handsome man. He's kind of a bluff. Uh, pudgy, older, you know, English type. He's not oh. American. So they really changed it for the movie. Were they supposed to end up in the end together? He's, he is supposed to be a potential love interest. Oh. Which is kind of implied at the end. Well, yeah, but it's okay with Joseph Cotton. It wouldn't yes. be with Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, he, oh no, in the, uh, in the play, it's not. In the play, there's no ro- ro- uh, oh. love interest. He's just the okay. rescuer. Hey, how about Grandma Exposition? Did you like her? <laughs> I liked her. Oh, Dame May Whitty as Miss Thwaites. Oh, okay. The little nosy busybody across the street. I thought she was she was both adorable and really annoying. Yeah, because she literally shows up on the train to tell us what's happening. <laughs> like, there's no other point of her being or that scene existing. But that except- scene is so uncomfortable. Because she's sitting with Ingrid Bergman saying, oh, oh, you're going to this area. Yes, I live here. You know we had an actual murder. It's like, um, and we know it's Ingrid Bergman's aunt was right. murdered horribly. And she's just reveling in it. It's so exciting. There was an actual murder and they never caught him. And, oh, that house is probably so filled with horrible. And Ingrid Bergman's like, shut up. Please shut up. I'm too, I'm too polite. I can't tell her to shut up. I want her to shut up. Yeah, I just... I initially grandma exposition because she yeah. does that, and then of course I think, oh well, she she's going away. Oh no, no, she'll be back. And when we get there, she is once again providing backstory. Yeah. So well, okay, because um, yep. Ingrid Bergman has left England to go to Italy, or is it Casablanca? Because I think it's the same back lot. Just <laughs> saying, <laughs> which yeah, you understand. That's fine. I can't really. Yeah. That's not a, a weakness of the film. That's just the deal of making films in Hollywood. But so she goes to to become an opera singer. Huh? Okay. And then it's That is her not. singing, by the way. Is it? Yes, it is. Interesting, because I was sure she was dubbed, and she may still have been dubbed, but if she's dubbing herself, huh. No, that's that's why none of her songs are very long. Ah. And because if you know if you pay attention, her voice doesn't have a lot of timber to it. She's no. great at, she can carry the melody and she's got nice tone, but she doesn't have the power that an opera singer needs. Yeah. Well, it's kind of weird because she goes to Italy to get away from it all and to yeah. study with this famous opera singer coach. And she basically spends 10 years try- trying to be an opera singer, only at the very end to go, nah, I don't want I want to marry this guy I know. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. That's where Charles Boyd is. I don't need up. a job. I got me a man's. Well, and to yeah. be fair, if you're going to go ahead and interject the idea about an older man and a younger woman being proper for the times, I can say that's what the deal was yeah. then, too. Yeah, that's, that's what women were. That's what women were expected to do. So we meet up with Charles Boyer, who happens to be the accompanist, and who is not there by chance, shall we say. How he found out she was going, I guess I don't know, but if she was close enough to the aunt, maybe, although she wouldn't have gone to Italy, whatever. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. I mean, also, he's extremely cunning. We get that. Yeah. Probably would have figured out some way. I suppose. That whole section is doesn't last very long, which is fine because we don't need it to last. It's very um, set-ish because she's staying at this hotel that happens to have its own lake and a boat in it. Although from the shot, you can't figure out, A, how the boat got there or B, where you're supposed to go in it because there's basically <laughs> enough room for the boat and that's yeah. it. So, And it even says like Hotel of the Lake in Italian yeah. and it's like, that's a lake. <laughs> 
I was also thinking, are they sharing a room? There They're is not some married yet. I know, and that's that's the implication. Like Naughty. the next morning is the next morning. So mm. hmm, even for 44. we do know they get. We knew know they get married there. She says when we were married by the lake. But, yeah, but I don't think. But I don't think it's. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So they're very very and, naughty. And initially, we don't really know at the initially. It seems like okay, uh, that's pretty much the acting uh, covered. I think. I think so. Yes. Yeah. So but, in uh, general, uh, good, adequate to good yeah. with a few standouts or standout moments depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. We're not sure at the beginning that uh, Gregory is a bad guy because he does seem to be in love. And, but the first, to me, the first thing, when did, what was your first, like, eh, what's this guy doing moment? Well, here's the problem. I know nothing about the film except the one thing it's famous for. Because of that, I immediately suspect him. So as soon as Boyer, sh- Boyer shows up, it's like, uh-oh. I, like, one of my earliest notes yeah. is, oh, Boyer's the killer. Which... <laughs> Spoiler! Hey, yeah, it's an yeah, almost eighty-year-old yeah. film. It's not that much of a spoiler, really. You kind of pick that up after about ten minutes. So, so, but in terms of the actions, for me, it's the fact that he wants her to move back into her her dead aunt's house. Yeah, and he manipulates her into doing it. I mean, he does have this very strange dream. He has a dream. He has, he a, has dream. a dream. And it's like, oh, of, of all the places in all the world I would like to live. I would like to live in a little British house around a little square. Ah, that's what I would like. Oh, how strange. I happen to have one of those left to me by my dead aunt. No. Ah, we oui? Oh, who will think of the chances? Ah. And it, <laughs> it seemed a little specific. She was marrying Pepe the Le Pew? <laughs> Somebody has to. Uh. <laughs> I, so I can I can definitely see being suspicious at that point because his his dream is very very specific. I mean he doesn't come out and say Thornton Park, but we've also already had that coincidence of Grandma Exposition. Oh, I just happened to live where you are. Yeah, there's was a killed. bunch of coincidences in this. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, yeah, I can see that. But the thing is, and I will say this. The writers, and I'm guessing George Cukor, Cukor, is trying to to slide into this very subtly and yeah. slowly. Yeah. So could they have made it a little bit more subtle? Yes. It's like, I would like to live in a small house with my wife. I need nothing more than this. It's like, well, you know, I didn't want to go back to this, but uh, what are you talking about? Oh, no, 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 we cannot do that. It is too painful for you. Or is it? And it, it could have been a little bit more subtle and not A little, so but he's still pretty subtle. I mean, in the I, especially, yeah, in the beginning, I do like the way he starts uh, making her think she's losing her senses. The way she he keeps taking things and saying, oh, you know, oh, where's this? Yeah, like he makes she gives her a brooch that he says was in his family for generations. He lies and then pockets it. I mean, we don't see it, but apparently mm. he steals it back from her, and she freaks out because she thinks she's lost it. Yeah, and she keeps losing th- losing in quotes things that he keeps hiding. Right. Well, and they get, well, before we even get to that, we get back to the house and it's full of all these memories and all this old furniture and stuff. And he seems to be very accommodating. He's like, oh, this is too painful for you. We'll take all the furniture. You don't have to do stuff. the accent every I time. I have to. I know. People will not know who I'm talking about. Uh-huh. We'll take all the furniture and put it in the attic and board it up. And that way you'll never have to see it again. And they do that. And then she starts losing things. This is a plot point. Plot point. A plot point. Yeah. So he does seem very charming and caring and interested in her well-being in the beginning of the film. And I think that there are points where he is very smooth. But really early on when they get to the house, she's going through some things and she finds a letter. Uh, And if you don't go for the thing about him oh you live in Thorndike oh, I'd love to go there if you that doesn't set you off him getting going from Charles Charles Boyer to the Incredible Hulk when she finds this letter I think is enough to make you realize that there's something wrong if you know yeah. nothing about the plot I think that point where he's like yeah. what letter what? you must not talk of these letter I yeah. mean this I is a letter to written it. to her 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 aunt who by the way was not just an opera singer she was like a major diva every she was lauded internationally Everyone loved her. Joseph She's the Cotton. sheep from uh, Sing. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, you know, Joseph Cotton's character, Brian, uh, met her when he was 12 years old. 
yeah. incidentally, and yeah. you know was just starstruck, whatever. And yeah, it's a letter to her from someone named Sergius something or other. Yeah, and that said, that freaks him the hell out, and the letter then disappears. Right, which is also which comes back as he claims there was never a letter, and she was holding nothing. Right, that's when he's, he's that's when he's like, okay, forget subtle. I'm just gonna I'm just messing with your damn head now. Yeah, we get to the house and they move in, and what ends up happening is she's all excited because she's like, oh, my aunt used to give all these parties and we'd have people over, and very quickly she's not well enough to take in visitors, including Granny Exposition. Yeah, and he starts isolating her very carefully. You know, she never goes out, and yeah, as uh, that little conversation between um, Elizabeth, the cook, the deaf cook, slightly deaf cook, and uh, I Angela guess. Lansbury, Nancy. Yep. Says, you know, is she very ill? The monster keeps telling her she's ill. Yeah. So right away you realize, okay, they one or both of them knows something's going on. And there's an interesting, although they don't really develop it. There's a sort of a I wouldn't say it's a rivalry, but there is friction between the cook who is an older woman and has been in service a long time and Angela Lansbury's character who thinks she knows everything. And as you pointed out, makes us feel like she's got an entire backstory that it's probably also pretty interesting. So they don't develop it because quite honestly, there's not really room for it. The film's almost two hours long, which for 44 is long. So one of the, the nasty touches that uh, Gregory does is he's trying to turn the servants against, uh, Against Paula, making her into the bad guy because she like, oh yeah, Paula thinks you stole this, or Paula wants you to, you know, Paula wants you to come in here and put coal on the fire, even though we could have done it ourselves. And when Paula is going, I can just put more coal on it. It's, it's I'm right here. It's right there. Yeah, so I've got a clean. gun. It's in yeah, the other room. The I other could go room. get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very. It's. Part of not just gaslighting; it's part of a lot of abusive relationships. It's isolating the person from any other contact. Yeah. And she and we're told months go by, and you can see it's working because when she tries to leave the house, she can't. Not because right. he won't let her; she can't do it. She like goes outside, looks around, panics, and goes back in. Well, and part of this is Angela Lansbury's fault, because she's like, well, what do I tell the master if you're not here when he comes home? Tell her, when I, where do I tell him you went? Like, she's, I think yeah. part of the deal is, and they don't actually come out with this in the film, I think part of the idea is she's trying to get into his pants. Yeah, she's trying to get in, quote, his good graces, and she does start kind of hitting on him a couple of points. Well, I don't even think it's good graces. I think she literally would love to see Paula go away yeah, and take her place. yeah. So I get, it, it adds a very interesting spice to the film that I'm going to say is otherwise mostly lacking um, for that interesting spice. I think that, that okay. the spice is most interesting coming from, and I can't remember Angela Lansbury's character's name. Nancy. Nancy, thank you. Um, but I, she does, yeah, she does a terrific job, and there, there could have been more done there. Who knows in the play if there was or not. But I, like, I still like the, the way, and part of it is, again, the script and the directing, the way Boye is just so damn clever. At one point they're invited to a recital by an old friend of uh, Paula's and she for once puts her foot down and says yeah, I'm going, I'll go alone if I have to. And there's a moment where he's in his, he's getting dressed because he's, he's not going to let her go out alone. He's like, oh crap, what do I do? And he doesn't say a word but you see his face and he gets this little smile like I just figured out how to use this. Yeah. I thought that was really good, and he uses it by when they get there. He's like, "Paula, my they're waiting for the, they're listening to the music." And he goes, "Paula, my watch is missing." She gets this look, and he looks in her purse, and what do you know? His watch is in her purse, which he's clearly pawned. Yeah. I Although I like, we don't see him do it. We know that's what he did, but we don't. Yes. Have, it's not like we see him like, "Ooh, drop." <laughs> well, but here's the thing. Um, if she thought for a moment, it's like, when would she have had the, uh, the opportunity to take his watch? Yeah. So but but she does okay. it. She's so, she's doubting everything. Yes. And does she just lose, she falls apart. She, all it takes is him saying that and finding the watch and she just goes into a spiral and starts crying and he, he takes her ways and he's like, ah, uh, see my wife, she's too sick to be out. I must take her home. Yes, my wife, you know, she crazy voice <laughs> in the addiction. Yeah. Meanwhile, off in the wings, Joseph Cotton uh, 
sees her, and because she resembles her aunt in a weird twist we haven't seen since uh what was that tv show their identical cousins um the, oh, patty duke patty duke show <laughs> in a weird sort of t- i look yeah. just like my aunt okay that's possible it can happen it happened with jan brady when she was a little girl if she looked it's, like her aunt jenny when she was imogene coca i don't think she looked anything like her but in the end anyway <laughs> but he starts following her and gets sniffing around gets the idea that there's something going on and either immediately suspects Charles Boyer because... He's French. Because he's French. Or <laughs> he he's, looks into the case, the old case files of the murder. I'm sorry, the murder. And, it was never solved, yep. Which was never solved. And he's one, he finds out something that was left out of the evidence, which is, well, it seems that the opera singer lady was seeing somebody that was potentially in the royal family of in a foreign country, and that person may have given her some jewels. Aha! Now we have... A clue! A clue! And I'm sorry, that is so English. The fact that they're like, oh yes, we we left that out of the case. Didn't want to offend anyone or embarrass anybody. And it wasn't even British royalty. It was some. No, I, I think it was Russian. Country. The implication is it was Russian crown jewels before the revolution. Ah, okay. So now he has reason not only to look into the case because of professional interest, but hey, you know, she reminds There's, me of that woman that gave me a glove when I was twelve, and it's like, <laughs> uh, who which, he, which he still Howell? had. <laughs> well, How many twelve-year-olds keep a lady's glove that long? Well, that is one thing that I thought was interesting because I'm going to quickly go back to that the party scene. There is a party where everyone is seated and they're wearing their finery. And I do mean finery. The clothes yeah. are dripping. And they're just sitting there listening to classical music. Oh, the latest Chopin. Oh, yes, yes. And that's all they're doing. Like, yep. And that was entertainment back then. So apparently being a big opera singer star... That's why we can believe yeah. it. That kind of does make sense, and I did like that part. So, sure, he kept a glove, and quite honestly, the glove co- probably cost today's equivalent of like a hundred dollars on its yeah, own. Yeah, these, these were fancy, fancy ass gloves. But then, of course, to be fair, if we want to be utterly fair, as far as Joseph Cotton's character Brian, his motivation is concerned when he sees who the woman is, the the niece. It's Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, suddenly I have taken a greater interest in this case. It's like, oh no, I'm being kidnapped by Robert Redford. Whatever shall I do? <laughs> blink, blink. <laughs> like, I must investigate closely. Yeah, so I think that we're supposed to believe that it's both childhood memory and... <laughs> which I guess makes sense. And then he starts instantly... Um, thinking that Charles Boyer is a bad guy, and he's right, partially yep. because there's not anybody else in the film. <laughs> well, also she's not around anybody else. So, but. Yeah. The nice thing is, is that when you're on the outside, it really doesn't take much to figure out what's been going on. And it's like, okay, why is she like this? Why is she all jittery and and not wanting to come out and stuff? It's like, oh, her husband comes out all the time. Hmm. Yeah. I suspect the maid. Yeah, he he leaves every evening to go to his studio where he is composing. Speaking of that. Yeah. Where does he get his money? Uh, Composing? (laughs) Because it's her house. Yeah. But that's land wealth. Land wealth never keeps you going. That's she just must have inherited. I assume he's living off of her, because you know he's well, just a poor. Well, except that she's expecting him to go off and earn money as a composer. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know where the money's coming from. Yeah, uh, he might. Besides, he might not have found the crown jewels, but he might have stolen other stuff. Well, Oops. except that they specifically Spoiler. say they specifically say nothing was missing. Things were moved, but they weren't missing, oh, so that's right. it's not that. That's right. I, yeah, we don't know. I, oh, I'm a gentleman. In Victorian yeah, pretty, times, yeah. that was enough. You made money just by being a gentleman. Yeah, pretty mm. much. I assume she must have inherited actual you know, wealth, too, yeah. in the house. Because it was pretty clear that uh, her aunt was very, was kind of rolling in it, and she was clearly she's the, the only sheep heir. from Sing. That's what she is. <laughs> <laughs> she totally is. <laughs> Uh, we do have a uh, talking point for this series, and yeah. I'd like to get to that, because uh, last week it was like, heck no, we do not want to see this film in color. But this week, Max, would this movie have been better in color? Or I'll even broaden the question, could you have pictured this movie in color? Not at all. 
Nope. There's so much done with shadows, light, and dark. I, I think color would have distracted, especially given how cluttered the interior of the house is and how it's all full of tchotchkes and so forth, all of which would have been bright colors or fancy. I think it would have, uh, I think it would have distracted. Joni and tchotchke? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I disagree. Uh-huh. I actually started visualizing the film in color because I, because most of the time, unless he's out wandering in the fog, I don't think there's really that much being done with the tones and the black and whitedness of the film. It didn't strike me nearly as much as it did in the third band. Let's uh, put okay. it that way. It really worked for me, especially with the light and the dark. Yeah, it just could be one of those points where we're just like, eh, yeah, eh, we okay. don't see it eye to eye, which is fine. But this one, yeah, this one didn't feel quite as much. I also feel that this film, and to be fair, it is, is a lot more Hollywood than third man uh, oh, as, yeah. soon as, as soon as the theme starts the overture it's like okay the orchestra's back um and it's just very hollywood which you know for for better or for worse so I do want to bring up uh, so a little more on the the plot toward the end so he the two things that have really been apart from him basically convincing her she's a kleptomaniac right and that her memory is going and she's hearing and seeing things that aren't there the two things that really get to her are the gaslight which goes down for no reason even though no one else is using the gas in the house and hearing footsteps or as I have here footsteps (laughs) above her room in the attic even though that full floor is boarded up and of course that's him in the attic looking for the fabulous jewels yeah which he, he does find finally yeah, sewn into one of her costumes. The same one that's in the painting of her. In this big painting of her. Yeah. Yeah. He finds yeah, them. I, 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 again, and one of the scenes I thought was really effective is she gets Elizabeth up in the room with her and she starts hearing the footsteps. And for a second, you're like, oh, there's someone else in the room. Elizabeth will hear it. It's like, oh, Elizabeth is hard of hearing. When she needs and she, to be. When, and yeah, yeah, that I have to say comes and goes pretty quickly. Talking of Michelangelo. Yeah. Sorry. But it's really frustrating because it's like, did you hear that? Hear what? Like, damn it! Yeah. That and the other tragic moment to me with Elizabeth is eventually at the end, you know, we're running out of time, so I want to get to the end. Yep. Joseph Cotton comes to the house. He waits until Charles Boyer's out. He comes in and he's basically, you know, Paula is pretty far gone at this point. She's convinced. She's almost completely convinced that she's crazy. She's Kukor for Cuckoo Puffs. She's Kukor for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> and she's just sort of, you know, vapor, vaporing around. And Joseph Cotton is trying to convince her she's not crazy. And he's there. He go, He says, oh, why'd the gas lights go down? She's like, you saw that? She's so happy. And he's managing to convince her that, no, you're not crazy. And when he leaves, he tells Elizabeth, look, whatever you do tonight... Keep your mistress's welfare in mind. And it's a kind of heartbreaking scene when her husband confronts her like there was, or the desk's been broken into, that's where they find the letter. He's like, who's been here? And she's like, oh, he was here, this man. who She never knows his name. He doesn't introduce himself or say that he's a policeman or anything. Nope. And uh, he... He's starting to flip out because, like, what? What has someone discovered? And calls up. She said, "Oh yeah, Elizabeth let him in." And Elizabeth, realizing what's going on, goes, "What man? There was nobody here." And you think, "Oh no, it's like she's helping drive her crazy," even though you know she is trying to help. Right. It's that, a tough moment because that is a really hard moment to watch. And I will say this for the actor who plays Elizabeth: she doesn't have a huge part. Her hearing is, um, yeah, sporadic. Goes in and out. Yeah. <laughs> But the expression on her face sells what she's doing. And it yeah. is important because we as an audience need to feel like she's trying to help and not trying to sell out Ingrid yeah. Bergman's character. So I did like that moment. I also, my favorite moment though, so it, they end up in the attic and Joseph Cotton has managed to tie Charles Boyer to a chair. Standard police procedure. And it's, unfortunately, it's one of those big cartoon ropes, so you're like, yes. how did this happen? Okay, how, how, What was that doing up there? I don't know. But she says, I want to speak to him. I want to speak to my oh, yeah. husband. Yeah, that, and that's and, rem- nice police work there, Lou, because it's like, oh, all right, I'll take the constable. 
which he leaves outside when he's trying to subdue uh, Charles Boyer, which he does off camera. All right, we'll wait outside and leave you here with a known killer who's been trying to, to drive you insane. Yeah, but I like this. This is that part where I said that I think Ingrid Bergman really shines because yeah. there is a moment where we worried that she might not go through with her quote-unquote recovery, but it's like, oh, no. She starts playing him the way she's been. he's been playing yeah. her. It's like, oh, no, I, I, a knife. Oh, I seem to have lost it. That's I don't right. know she, what could he, have happened to he's it. He's saying, no, there's a knife in that drawer. You know, get it. Let me cut me free. And she like takes the knife out and goes, "There's no knife. What are you talking about?" Yeah. I mean, I there can't be a knife because I'm crazy, right? And she's just ripping into him, and he's just the way he's sitting there going, "Oh crap!" And there's a moment where I'm going, "Is she going to stab him?" Yeah, I thought she was going to shoot him, honestly, uh, but or one or the other. But and we yeah. don't know. And that's that's again why I think she shines at the end because we don't know. And having not seen the film before, I'm like, I could easily see this where the camera pans just to her face and you have that swell of music that says, yeah. he just got stabbed uh, in French. <laughs> I, the, the line I really like is, you know, he's begging, help me, you know, let me, give me another chance. And she's going, the problem, I'm mad. If I weren't mad, I could help you. <laughs> like, dang! And whose fault is that? Yeah. Uh, I will say that I wish at the very end we could actually have seen her happy. We get yeah. potential. We get potential. And that ending is both kind of abrupt and very Hollywood. Very you know, Hollywood. You know, Grandma Exposition walks in on them <laughs> in the attic. And just like she's sort of leaning against Joseph Cotton and she just goes, well. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, the sun might be coming up. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we should uh, get to the uh, end part where we talk about whether yep. we liked the film or not. Oh, hang on. Well, uh, not yet. <laughs> not, sorry, not yet. We're running out of time. Too bad. I, as, a, as a gem nerd, I have to bring up two things. Up oh, here we go. When they go to visit the crown jewels. They aren't. First of all. Well, that, of course they're not. That doesn't <laughs> I mean, obviously they're... I they're want not, realism. No, no, no. They're not going to let them film in there. I don't think they ever did. But first of all, he keeps talking. He talks about the Black Prince's ruby, which is a big stone in the Imperial crown. That is not a ruby. And he, t and he says it's a ruby. It is not. It's a spinel. And people have known this since the 16th century. Okay. So he's supposed to be... And... He points out, look, the Kohinoor diamond, right. which is just sitting on a pillow. Mm. The Kohinoor is a diamond. It is real. The English do, did acquire it, <laughs> but it's all it's been set in a crown since 1901, and ah. before that, it was in a brooch. Oh, the Queen it Victoria. <laughs> oh, it was a brooch that uh, Queen Victoria wore. Okay, so I was going to say this. We don't know. Ruined the whole movie. <laughs> wow, you're crazy. Now. Now we can talk about the end. The finish. So, Max. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. You are not jumping this gun. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Max, you saw yeah. it when you were 12 in Bar Harbor. Yep. Uh, did it leave an impression on you? Or? It left some lasting scars, but... <laughs> oh, no, really? I remember as a kid, I really liked it. it, it oh. I thought it was really cool. Oh, you're one of those nerdy kids who liked old movies. Yeah, I yeah. was. I was. One of, I loved old black and white movies. Mm. So have you seen it many times since then? I think I've seen it once oh. since then, if that. Wow. Yeah. So, like, just for the show? Uh, nope. I saw it once for. Oh, sorry, counting this twice. I think I saw it at a movie marathon about twenty, thirty years ago. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, so now you're watching it again, or yep. oh, no, 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 never mind. What did you think? Do you think it holds up? I do. I think it holds up really well. I, I really enjoy it, and I, I think the psychological manipulation is still very relevant because I think it's absolutely believable. And you, this is the first time you've seen it, right? It is. What did you think? I do not think it holds up. Oh, okay. I find the writing to be strange. I find the motivations for some of the characters, Joseph Cotton, for example, to be really questionable. Um, I don't see where they're coming from. They're either too coincidental or I really just don't see the attraction. Like the, we talked about chemistry in one of our poll questions recently. Is there a lot of chemistry between Joseph Cotton and Ingrid Bergman? Not really. No. Is there any between Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer? I think yes. there's some. some. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I don't. He sort of comes out of left field. He is the American in the British Scotland Yard, yeah. which makes no sense to us Very at all. Very odd. But we get down to Gregory. That's that's Charles Boyer character's motivation, and he really doesn't have any. And this he is why. loves jewels. But here's the thing. There was no reason for him to do what he did. All he needed to do was convince her that he loved her, marry her. He could have spent as much time as he wanted going through the old aunt stuff. What would she have cared? He was pre-married, so he was going to leave anyway. Yeah. So also, why did he need to go why through did this? He, why did he need her at all? Why couldn't he have broken into the uh, house or that was gone into left the empty room, for ten years? Which was no one was living, and they make a big point of no one's lived in it for ten years. He could have just gone in, taken his time, and gone through the attic. It just didn't. His motivation does not make sense. Now, what he did and the way he did it, I think, was very effective. Yeah, it it's just, just needlessly complicated. It was, because we show, later on, we see him, oh, I'm going out for my walk to my little uh, place where I write my music. And he wanders around, goes behind the house. He actually goes to the, the top of a, an abandoned house two doors down, yeah. gets in there, gets to the roof, wanders down the roof, and comes in through the attic window to search through the supposedly boarded up attic. And she hears his footsteps because he's not being careful because he's using this against yeah. her. He could easily have been quiet, but I didn't. I didn't even get to the part of the, oh yeah, the house was abandoned for ten years. The one thing I could see is the problem is everything wasn't in the attic initially. It was all scattered through the house, meaning, you know, because she wanted everything put in the attic and he encouraged it. Right. So he would have had to had to search the entire house top to bottom, which could have taken a really long time. This concentrated everything in the attic. So well, there's at least that. Well, except that when they were boxing up stuff for the attic, he could have been going through whatever. So I, there's a lot of murkiness to me in the writing and the motivations of some of the characters here. And for that reason, I don't think it holds up. I think, again, we get a really nice end performance. Actually, the whole movie works this way for me. The film is kind of... It's paced okay, but quite honestly, it's kind of dull in a lot of places until we get to the end. And to me, the whole ending, the last 15 minutes or so of the film are way more exciting than the rest of the film put together. Right. I think I think it's, we get a great performance of Angela Lansbury. Uh, Charles Bray is fine. I don't have anything for or against him. I think he's fine. But the writing is just murky, and I don't think it works. Okay, well, agree to disagree then. We will have to. So really... You are a booby, and you belong in the booby hatch. <laughs> that would be wrong. What would be right is for you to go over this week's poll question. Yes, I will. What movie is your favorite just in terms of costume or wardrobe? What's your favorite use for, where the wardrobe is practically a character on its own? And you can answer this by emailing us at us at maxmikemovies.com for Boku Bumpy Bucks. And... <laughs> Yes, you can also uh, go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, and leave a comment. Or you can find us on a social media on the Facebook under Max Mike Movies. Sadly, we are uh, to, keep to, Elon free. <laughs> to keep ourselves muskless, we, <laughs> we will be leaving Twitter. Yes. And I know this is a big disappointment to our five followers. Wasn't it six? We lost one. Ah. <laughs> I, think, I think the bot ran out of juice. I see. <laughs> but, so, please do let us know. No more questions, comments, suggestions, because we do take them. And uh, at least at some point in the future, we're going to desperately need your suggestions. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. But also but, something cool happened this week. Yeah. On our website, two of our listeners started talking to each other. I thought that was really cool. Vince They're and not allowed. Cheeseboy. They may only speak to us. <sighs> do whatever you want. Don't listen to Max. In general, not even just for this. No, I thought it was actually really charming. It's yeah. like Cheese Boy started talking to Vince, and Vince started back to Cheese Boy. So, yeah, have conversations up there. That's cool. Yes, you have, have our respond. permission to talk to each other, because you needed but. it. But we are still still knee-deep in black-and-white movies, so what's our next movie? Ike? Well, I alluded to this earlier in the show, but I think we're going to go for another biggie classic, and I mm. think we're going to go for something a little bit less, well... I won't say it's less dark, because we are talking about black and white films, so mm -hmm. if you don't have the dark, you don't have the light. So, so I think we're going to stay right in the same realm. We're going to stick in the 40s, 
and we're going to go for, it's a lesser known film. It's not on, big on anybody's lists, huh? um, partially because the main star of the film is in fact avian in nature. Uh, um, it is a bird. <laughs> you may remember. Uh, we're going to watch The Chicken of Brazil, a classic. Oh, you have seen it. I have. <laughs> it's tasty. No, no, no. We're going to watch The Maltese Falcon. Ah, uh, uh, Perhaps you would like to give me the Falcon now? This is one of those iconic films where even yeah. if you haven't seen it, somehow you've seen you've it. Seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But and it's got and it's got that trio. It's got Humphrey, it's got Sydney, and it's got Peter, right? So it's got the th those three who would do other things together, including films like Casa something. Yep. But here's the thing, it's been a long time. Does this film hold up? Is it still is it actually a classic or is it one of those things that's been overblown over time? We're gonna scrape the layer of lead off this film and let you see the gems beneath. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. <laughs>